I'm curious, have you ever had a time when you had trouble getting your point across? Or is that just me? You know, maybe you were trying to communicate with your spouse, and as hard as you tried, you were unable to walk away with any kind of a cleared, clear, shared understanding. Or maybe you can think of a time when you had a discussion with one of your teenage children, and you felt like that they were speaking a different language than you. Well, I can assure you that your teenage child walked away from that same conversation feeling like you spoke a different language than they did. You know, maybe you are a manager at work, you manage people, and you had to have a conversation with an employee, and they walked away with a totally different understanding of the things that you said to them. Do you know what I'm talking about? Are you familiar with the frustration that comes with misconceptions? And here's the truth. Misconceptions can be more than just frustrating. They can warp our understanding, and they can destroy relationships if we allow them to. And the reason I bring this up is because in our text for this morning, in John chapter 6, if you want to go ahead and get ready and start turning there, you can. Jesus is involved in a lengthy conversation. He's having it with some of the same people that were a part of that great multitude that he performed a miracle by multiplying the loaves and the fishes in the little boy's lunch pail just the day before. He had fed a multitude of people. The scriptures say there were 5,000 men. Uh, we know that those men didn't come without their wives and children, so it's, a, it's estimated that there was probably fifteen to 20,000 people that Jesus fed with that little amount of food. That was a miracle. But their response to the miracle, and not just the miracle, but the things that Jesus said afterwards shows us that they just didn't get it. Jesus' message went right over their heads. The things that these people said indicate that they embraced misconceptions. And ironically, it's the same kind of faulty thinking that we see in our day and age. So I want to read the scripture text together from John chapter 6. We'll be reading verses 22 through 33. If you don't have your Bible, it'll be on the screen behind me. And I'm, as I have through this entire series, I'll be reading from the New International Version. John 6, 22 through 33. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very very truly, I, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. 
Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. As you read this, you can clearly see the crowd's misconceptions coming through loud and clear. You can see in this exchange how that their, their thinking gave them a warped understanding of God. And that warped understanding of God most certainly would hinder and probably halt their belief in God or their ever having a chance of following him. So with this in mind, today what I want to do is I want to offer some scriptural corrections to these misconceptions, and I'm going to point out five of them that I can find in this story, but I want to first offer you just a little bit of background. You may remember two weeks ago, according to the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, after this event referred to as the feeding of the 5,000, that Jesus had sent his disciples on to Capernaum while he dispersed the large crowd that was there. But a group of that no longer hungry multitude decided to stick around and they tried to find out where Jesus went. They had seen the 12 disciples sail off without Jesus. And because no other boat remained there, they assumed that Jesus was still enjoying solitude somewhere around the surrounding hillside. Eventually, when they realized that he was no longer in the area, they hitched a ride on some small boats nearby. They were boats that had, came, had come from Tiberias, which was a city on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. And they had apparently heard uh, the Lord's instructions to his disciples, telling them that he wanted them to go ahead to Capernaum. So they headed off in that same direction, hoping for news about where Jesus could be found. When they arrived and they found that Jesus was already there, they expressed surprise in finding him so far from where he was last seen, but not just that, how he got there in such a short amount of time. According to verse 25, they asked, they asked Jesus when he got there, but in all truth and more accurately, they were really wondering how he got there. And I can't help but wonder what they would have thought if Jesus had actually just come right out and said, well, to be honest with you, I just walked three and a half miles on the surface of this lake. I got into the boat with my disciples. I calmed the storm and I instantaneously transported all of us, boat included, to the shoreline. By the way, I recently read that they are building a submerged bridge on the Sea of Galilee so that tourists can look like they're actually walking on water like Jesus did. Isn't capitalism a beautiful thing? In any case, based upon Jesus' response here, the crowd wondered how he had eluded them. But that wasn't the main thing on their minds. And Jesus knew what they were focused on, and so he says this in verses 26 and 27. Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And this leads me to the first misconception found in this lengthy conversation between Jesus and, and, this, and these people. And it is a belief that physical food and things will satisfy the hungers 
of life. And we see this flawed mindset in Jesus' own words. For example, the word that we translate as saw in verse 26, where um, it, it means to see, not to just see, but to see with perception. Jesus was telling them that they saw the loaves, physically saw the loaves with their eyes, but they didn't perceive the meaning behind it all. They feel, failed to see the true nature of Jesus. All they did was eat the food. The physical meal is all that they got out of that miracle that day, that day on the hillside. Further proof of their misconception can be seen in the word fill. When he said, because you ate the loaves and had your fill. It's a Greek word that we use to describe a cow receiving food. Perhaps because cows have four stomachs, cows think primarily with their stomachs. They don't thank the farmer who fed them. They don't even consider the purpose of the food that they're eating. They are just four-footed eating machines. To them, life is just a, a string of days where they focus on filling their four stomachs. So Jesus was saying to these people that they were acting like a herd of cows. They didn't know that, but when you break down the Greek, that's really what he's, what he's saying. The message of the miracle or of the sign, as John calls miracles, that he performed failed to penetrate their understanding. All they thought of was their material needs. They sought Jesus only because they were hungry once again. To them, the physical, to them, the temporary was all that mattered. And because of that, they saw this miracle, but the message of the miracle behind it completely passed them by. But you know, we can't be too critical of these people because physical food is certainly a priority in all of our lives. We eat roughly 20 to 25 times every week. Most of us have eaten already today, and we will eat two to three more times before the day is done. Some, between, with snacks and everything, might eat five, six, seven, eight times before our head hits the pillow tonight. In fact, as I speak to you, some of you are already formulating plans on where you're going to have lunch after this service is over. Am I right? I got the first service to raise their hand. Anybody thinking about that right now? Oh, you're a much more pious group here. Yeah. Oh, thank you, sister. I, I appreciate your honesty. Thank you very much. You know, um, we include eating in almost everything we do in America, right? I mean, whenever there's a get-together, an outing, I mean, like we're doing next Sunday, we're having hot dogs, right? We're having, we're having grill, grilled hot dogs and fellowship. Food is always a part of what we do. And uh, even our, our, our satellite and, and cable TV uh, providers, they, they offer us now channels that are devoted to nothing but food, preparation of food and eating food. So our 21st century abundance of food makes it really hard, I think, for us to appreciate the perspective of these people struggling to survive in first century Galilee. As I said a couple of weeks back, the full stomachs that these people experienced because of Jesus' great miracle that day was probably a rare thing for them. Perhaps for some of them, it was a first in their lifetime to have actually a full stomach. So, so let's not be too harsh on them. They woke up the day after this miracle, and like all of us, their stomachs were growling. 
They were hungry again, like we are. And it motivated them to hop a ride on these boats to go find Jesus, their meal ticket, one more time. But notice that Jesus didn't really criticize them for coming to him for more food. He just took advantage of it as a teachable moment to tell them that he had come to do far more than to fill their stomachs. He was using their physical hunger as a springboard to address what was the real truth, and that was that they all had a spiritual hunger, just like every human being who walks the face of this earth. He was trying to help them to understand that the things of this world do not satisfy the longing that we have deep inside for God. And it's a message that you and I in our, in our time and day need to hear as well, because you can be as rich as Bill Gates and still be hungry for more. You can have everything that this world offers and still be unsatisfied. You see, the truth is our, our hunger seems to have no limits. And I'm talking more specifically our hunger for things and possessions and, and everything else, not just food. We have no limits on that, but the fulfillments of those hungers, they, they tend to be few. In first century Rome, the luxury of the upper class at that time was unparalleled. And perhaps you maybe recall reading in your history books that it was during this time that the Romans served feasts of rather odd and exotic and unusual things to eat. Delicacies like peacock brain and nightingale tongues were commonplace. They even took stuff to induce vomiting between the different courses of the meal so that they could ingest or take in more food. And meals like that today would cost us tens of thousands of dollars to put on, but they were commonplace. And, and there was a reason for this, this indulgence or this, this overindulgence, if you might call it that. It was a deep dissatisfaction. It was a, a deep hunger that they were trying to satisfy in vain. These Romans were looking for anything that would give them a new thrill, something that would give them a new taste in life. And just like many people in our day and age, they were appallingly rich, but at the very same time, they were appallingly hungry. And don't miss Jesus' point here. He was saying that it is foolish to focus on physical satisfaction because there are far more important hungers in life. And furthermore, they can only be satisfied by him, Jesus, the bread of life. There is a hunger for truth. And of course, we know that Jesus is a truth. He is the answer to all of life's questions. There is a hunger for life. And Jesus alone can give us life, abundant, eternal life. There is a hunger for love. And God can provide, God alone can provide that kind of love to people like you and me that outlasts even death. There is a hunger from God, and only through Christ Jesus can we come into a relationship with our Heavenly Father. Christ alone can satisfy any insatiable hunger or, uh, for, for satisfaction that we might seek. It is a misconception. It is flawed thinking to look for satisfaction anywhere else because it will come up short. Why can Jesus alone satisfy these hungers? Because according to verse 27, he alone has the seal 
of God the Father. He said it himself. It's almost like when you go to Raley's and you pick up some food and it's got that FDA stamp of approval on there, which assures you that this is pure, that this is good. You can safely eat this food. Jesus is the only way to satisfy that, that inborn inner longing that we all have because he alone has God's stamp of approval. He alone is the bread of life. You know, bread is a staple in our pantries, and is, but it was even more so back then. In our culture, when we go to a restaurant, we focus more on the entree that we are going to order and the basket of bread that sometimes comes along with that, it's, it's just secondary. But in Jesus' day, it was just the opposite of that. Meat was a side dish and bread represented the major, major part of the meal. In fact, most of the time, they didn't even have meat. They might have fish occasionally, but meat was a rarity. So bread was the main thing. Without bread, the people of that day would starve. So Jesus was saying to them, you want bread? Do you want what is truly essential to life? Well, I am the bread of life, and my body will be broken, and my blood will be shed so that your hunger for God can be satisfied. You need the forgiveness that only I can provide and make possible just as desperately as you need this daily bread that you're talking about. I, he says, am what you are looking for. In the same way that you can't survive without bread, Jesus says, you can't survive in this world without me. I have come to satisfy your inner longings. One Christian apologist put it this way. He said, Jesus intended to lift the listeners from their barren, food-dominated existence to the recognition of the supreme hunger of life that could only be filled by a different bread. But tragically, those people didn't get it. Their satisfaction, their true hunger was standing right in front of them, but they couldn't see it. And because of that, they continued to hunger. In his book titled Into Thin Air, author John Krakauer shares the hazards that plague mountain climbers as they attempt to reach the summit of Mount Everest. Andy Harris, one of the expedition leaders, stayed at the peak of that mountain for too long, and upon his descent down the mountain, he became in dire need of oxygen. He radioed the base camp, and he told them about his predicament. He mentioned that he had come across a cache of oxygen canisters that were left there by the other climbers, but he stated that they were all empty. Well, the climbers who had already passed that point and had already started their descent down that mountain, they knew that this was not true. They had not touched those canisters. Those canisters were not empty. They were full. So they pleaded with him on the radio to use them, but to no avail. Harris, at this point, was starved for oxygen, and yet he continued to argue that these canisters were empty. The problem was that the lack of what he needed most was disorienting his mind. And even though he was surrounded by something that would give him life, he continued to, to complain of its absence. Ironically, the very thing that he held in his hand was absent in his brain. 
the, the lack of oxygen had ravaged his mind and his capacity to recognize what was right in front of him. And let me just say what oxygen is for the physical body, Jesus, the bread of life, is to the soul. Many people in our world are suffocating. They are, they are starving, and they don't even realize it. While Jesus stands there, and he offers abundant, meaningful life, while they run around trying to, to appease their appetites with everything else that does not provide them with any kind of lasting satisfaction. You know, we tend to think that we are hungry for popularity, or money, or, or power, or success, or prestige, or physical intimacy. But our real hunger, ladies and gentlemen, is for food that lasts. Our real hunger is for God. And that kind of hunger can only be satisfied in a relationship with Christ Jesus. Listen, the bread of the world spoils. It just doesn't last. Just like the bread that we buy at Raley's that has an, uh, an expiration date. Mold, if it's not eaten, will eventually take its course. The only thing that lasts is Christ Jesus. He is the bread of life. If our world could only grasp this truth. Well, as I said, this crowd didn't. They didn't get it. They refused to listen. Jesus' message went right over their head. Well, the crowd's response to, to Jesus' teaching showed that they embraced a second misconception, and it's flawed. And sadly, it is still commonplace even today. And it is an erroneous belief that our works and good deeds can somehow earn us a relationship with God that we all hunger for. Look at what they say in verse 28. What must we do to do the works God requires. To get this special kind of bread of life, there must be something we have to do, Jesus. Surely bread that, that doesn't spoil, bread that is this filling, bread that is this satisfying, surely bread this good can't be free. So tell us, Jesus, what does it cost? What do we have to do in order to get it? Jesus said the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. In other words, you've got it all wrong, people. You, your, your thinking is flawed. There is nothing required. It's all grace. You just have to believe in me. In verse 27, Jesus had plainly said that he would give them the food that endures to eternal life. But they took the word give and they deleted it. And in their minds, they, they inserted the word work. And the truth is, many of us are just as dense. I heard about a youth pastor who asked his teens to, to write out their testimony, sharing how they came to their faith in Christ Jesus. And almost every one of them began by saying, I walked the aisle one Sunday. And he came to realize that in clarifying statements like that, he realized that to a teenager, getting eternal life enjoying a personal relationship with Jesus, having your sins forgiven, well, that was just too good to be a gift. They had to do something in order to earn it. And the hardest thing that they could think of, the most difficult work that they could conceive, would be to walk down an aisle in front of a bunch of people, especially if that congregation happened to include some of their peers. 
Standing up for Jesus publicly like that was the hardest work that they could imagine. So in their minds, it must somehow be tied to salvation, and that's why they all began their testimonies that way. Well, maybe it is hard to stand up in front of people, and maybe it is hard to say that you are a sinner in need of God's grace and have decided to follow Jesus. But even that work, as good as it is, it gets you no closer to God. The Bible doesn't say, for God so loved the world that whosoever stands up in front of a crowd should not perish but have everlasting life. It doesn't say, for God so loved the world that whosoever doeth good works should should not perish, but have everlasting life. No, it says that this eternal gift that comes from God is from our belief, our simple belief that Jesus is who he says he is and that he did what the Bible said he did, that he died on the cross in our place. And make sure you hear me out on this. This belief that we can do something or work ourselves into being worthy of God's love is a hugely dangerous misconception. It's like believing we could pay for a house with a bunch of monopoly money because our works, our deeds, no matter how good they may look on the outside, aren't worth the paper that they're printed on. Our salvation and the abundant eternal life that comes with it is all God's grace. Our works have nothing to do with getting us into heaven. The only thing that can do that is our belief and our faith in Jesus' redemptive work. And while we're on this subject, let me remind you of something. Our understanding of God's grace is the thing that sets Christianity apart from all other world religions. Every other religion is based upon works. It's based upon people doing something. Do you understand that? I don't know if you've ever done a study. I was forced to in Bible college. We studied many of the world's religions. And, and, and you can see the theology. You can see the, the rules, the regulations. All of them are based on works. Adherence to other belief systems struggle somehow to earn the favor of God. Some religions teach people that they have to, to, to use a Tibetan prayer wheel or to go on some kind of a pilgrimage or they have to give alms to the poor or they have to avoid eating certain foods or they have to perform a certain number of unspecified good deeds. They have to pray a certain time a day facing a certain direction multiple times a day or they have to go through a cycle of reincarnations or, or whatever it is. Other religious systems are essentially a do-it-yourself proposition. They say, follow this way of life that we're promoting to you, and there is a good chance that you will gain favor with God, and you will eventually attain salvation or nirvana or whatever it is that they call the ultimate goal or result of that religion. In short, other faiths are attempts by people to reach out to God but Christianity teaches us that in Christ Jesus, God reached out to us. And let me just correct a third misconception at this point. All religions are not the same. And if you've bought into this concept and this idea that they're trying to shove down the throat of the world, that we all serve the same God, we're just coming at him in different directions, you really need to get in your Bible and read some things because that is not true. They're trying to make Muslims and Christians and Buddhists seem like we're cut from the same cloth. We are not. 
We do not serve the same God. There is a difference, and you need to be in the Word of God so you cannot be misled by all the falsehood that's going on out there. Um, Only Christianity is based on grace and not works. It teaches us, as I said, that God reaches down because we were incapable of reaching up to him. Just like it says in 1 John 4.10, it is not our love for God, it is God's love for us in sending his son to be the way to take away our sins. We must always value God's grace because far too many people have a misconception of what serving Jesus is all about in the first place. Works are worthless when it comes to your salvation. No matter how many good things you or I may do in our lifetime, they cannot merit one second of the life that Jesus offers to those who believe in him. It's just like those old hymnal lyrics say, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Let's move on to our text because what we see And the people's response of Jesus' teaching regarding the grace of God shows us that they embraced a fourth popular misconception, and it is this, a belief that miracles always lead people to a deeper faith in God. And I have to say, I think that this crowd's response in verse 30 would be humorous if it wasn't so stinking serious. I mean, ignoring the miracle that they had just been a part of, or should I even say that they had just tasted less than 24 hours earlier, not to mention all of the other things that they had witnessed Jesus doing. I'm talking about the kind of miracles that compelled them in the first place to walk those nine miles around the top of the Sea of Galilee to get to him that day when he performed the feeding of the 5,000. In spite of all of this, they said to him in John 6.30, What miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? That is so human, isn't it? What have you done for me lately? I'm reminded of an old story of two men who were talking about a mutual friend one day. When one of the men became very critical while the other man expressed surprise at his friend's critical words. So much so that he reminded him of how much his friend had repeatedly helped him. For example, he had given him his down payment for his first home. He had given him a job one time when he was laid off of work. He even gave him one of his kidneys years earlier. And and, and the man said, yes, but he hasn't done anything for me lately. And that's the problem with miracles, ladies and gentlemen. We forget them so easily. You can clearly see this form of amnesia going on within the hearts and minds of this crowd. Apparently, the impression of of the miraculous way Jesus multiplied those five loaves and those two fish just the day before perished with the food that they ate while it was digesting in their bodies. Yesterday, they were ready to acclaim Jesus as being greater than Moses. And now today, They're throwing Moses in Jesus' face. They said, our forefathers ate manna in the desert every day. Can you top that one, Jesus? That's another big problem with miracles. They're like an addictive drug because you always need another fix when you get up the next morning. These people were saying, show us something else. 
And when we see it, then we'll believe. But as I pointed out a few weeks back, things don't always work that way. Seeing doesn't necessarily mean believing. Remember in Elijah's day when God performed a miracle on Mount Carmel? It was when he, fit, he sent fire down to consume the sacrificed bull that Elijah had soaked in water and was laying on the altar. And in answer to Elijah's prayer, God zapped that soggy bull into ashes. But interestingly enough, God's display of power on that day had no long-term effect on Israel. No revivals broke out. And if there was a brief little flurry of religious uh, fervor, the nation quickly settled right back into its pattern of drifting away from God. King Ahab himself was a spectator on that day at that event at Mount Carmel. He wasn't affected by it because all he left was a legacy of being Israel's most wicked king ever. And apparently, that fireball on Mount Carmel had no lasting impact on the prophet Elijah either. Because after he heard of Jezebel's intent to hunt him down and have him killed, he ran. He doubted God. He fell into a deep depression. Well, Jesus knew that in a fallen world, miracles don't always foster strong belief. He knew the shallow effect on miracles in both Moses' day and Elijah's day. Sure, they will attract crowds sometimes, but they rarely encourage long-term faithfulness. The miracles did just what Jesus had predicted. To those who chose to believe in him, those miracles gave him them one more reason to believe in him. But for those who, who were determined to deny him, the miracles made little difference. Some things just have to be believed to be seen. Well, here's a fifth misconception that we see in this text. A belief that God chooses to reach out in love to some people while rejecting the rest. These people thought that as Jews, they were chosen, chosen to, to rule the world. Um, remember, they wanted Jesus to be a political Messiah. They wanted him to be king. They wanted him to change Israel from being a conquered nation to being a, a, a world power. Like many of the Jews their day, the people in this crowd had forgotten what God had called them to, that they were a chosen nation, that they were, they were a kingdom of priests, a nation and, and a group of people that would share God's love with other people groups, other nations. Well, today we have people who are just like those in the crowd that day with a kind of a warped thinking, especially those who are in the increasingly popular reformed movement. They quote passages of scriptures like John 6, 37, where it says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And John 6, 44, where he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent, them, who sent me draws him. Now, those, those verses are true, but they cite these verses to underscore their conviction that God chooses to love some and to reject others. Their belief is that all people are already predestined by God to spend eternity in either heaven or hell. In their minds, our eternal destiny is not our choice. 
but that God already made the decision. Well, I do not believe if you do a systematic study of the scriptures that the Bible supports that kind of theology at all. I believe that this is a major misconception. Yes, God does indeed know everything. So of course, he already knows who will accept and who will reject him. But I believe the Bible teaches us that in his sovereignty, God still gives every man, every woman, every child the free will to choose to accept or to reject Christ Jesus. And there are several passages that support that. Romans 10, 13. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that Whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. 2 Peter 3, 9, God is not willing for anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. 1 John 2, 2, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. And even in this text, God in the flesh is standing there, literally reaching out to people who are rejecting him, saying, I am the bread of life. I am what you are looking for. And what about the text in Matthew 23, 37, where Jesus stands and he looks over Jerusalem full of people who would have him hung on a cross and crucify him. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets, and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you, you were not willing. Do these verses sound to you like God's love is selective? I don't think so. And of course, I'm not the only one who believes this. Harry Ironside says, and I quote, nowhere in the Bible are we told that God has predetermined before a person is born that he will be lost or saved. J.B. Phillips writes, whatever is to be said about the sovereignty of God in human salvation, God never sets up arbitrary, impossible, and wholly unattainable terms for our coming to Christ. Herschel Hobbes writes, the idea that God predestines some for heaven and others for hell, such an idea contradicts the vast body of biblical teaching on the free will of man. Here's how to correct this age-old misconception. Here's how to straighten out this twisted teaching. In his sovereignty, God has elected a way of salvation. He has offered a plan. That plan centers on Christ. And all of those who choose to believe in Christ and receive him as Lord and Savior, they will be saved. And those who choose to reject him, they will be lost. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, it is up to you and I. Man is free to either accept or reject Jesus' sovereign offer. However, man is also responsible for his own decision. I've heard people say, how would a loving God allow someone to go to hell? A loving God has offered the solution to that problem. It's that individual chose to make the decision not to follow Christ Jesus. That's why an individual does not see eternal life in God's presence. Yes, Jesus says, no man can come to me unless the Father who sent him draws, draws him. But I believe the Bible teaches that God draws all men. 
And he continues to draw even those who have rejected him time and time again. As Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 1, even people who have never heard the gospel story can look at creation and they can see God. They can see his love and his majesty in his creation calling out to them. And I believe that all people respond to this yearning that determines their eternal destination. In fact, I believe that if you are here or if you are watching online and you are not currently a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, right at this very moment, God is reaching out to you. He is making you uncomfortable with your life as it is right now. He's reminding you of all the dissatisfaction. He's reminding you of the hungers and the thirst that you have, you have had, that you've tried to fill with everything but him and showing you that it was all wrong. He's helping for you to see that things need to change. You need his forgiveness. You need Christ Jesus. You feel hungry for more. The only way for you to satisfy that hunger is to accept the bread of life, Jesus Christ. Well, you've got to understand that the crowd didn't take too kindly to Jesus' words and everything that he said. In fact, if you will read the rest of the chapter, you will see that there were three basic responses to Jesus' teaching that day. First, there was open defection. Verse 66 says, from this time, many of his disciples, he's not referring to the 12, talking to those multitudes who followed him. Many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Then there was firm determination. Verses 67 and 69, Jesus asked his 12 disciples, you do not want to leave too, do you? And Peter replied, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. In other words, he's saying, Lord, we have no other options. You have the words of eternal life. Even though we don't understand all of it, we're going to faithfully follow you. He got the order right. Belief first and understanding later. The final response to all of this was subtle deception. Look at verse 70. Jesus said, have I not chosen you the 12? Yet one of you is a devil. He means Judas the son of, of Simon Iscariot, one of the 12 who would later on betray him. So I ask you this morning, what is your response? What is your response to the grace and the mercy and the crucifixion and the life-giving status of being in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Can you guys come forward and help me to close this down? I'd appreciate it. I'd like to ask all of you to stand to your feet if you would. What is your response? Will you do as many people did on that day and reject Jesus? Are you thinking this is really too hard of a teaching? For me to believe that, that Jesus is the only way, I'm going to stand out like a sore, sore thumb in this world. I'm going to face all kinds of criticism from other people. So I think I'll look for something a little bit easier, something that's a little bit more popular, something that's a little more accepting for our doubting world. Or will you be like Peter and hang on to your faith, 
Even though you don't know everything, even though you don't get everything you've ever read in the Bible, even though you don't understand why God works the way he does sometimes, but I will tell you, however he works, he works in your favor. You just don't see it. God is always working behind the scenes in ways for your benefit. Can I just say this morning that any difficulty that comes from serving Jesus, it really happened to Jesus. It doesn't happen to you and I. We, uh, we tend to look at the slightest bit of persecution that we get and we're ready to crumble and we think, oh, this is just so demanding. I, I can't help but think that, that Jesus must roll his eyes sometimes and goes, really, that, that's all the strength, that's all the stick to it is that you have. When you look at what, what I went through, the sinless, innocent, perfect son of God who did nothing wrong but to preach the truth and to extend love to all. He was arrested, he was crucified. He was beaten beyond recognition. He was nailed hand and feet to a wooden cross. And from his beating and the blood that was pouring from his hands and feet, he lost great quantities of blood as it poured out of his body. And as he hung there, nailed to that cross, he was suffocating from the weight of his own body. Hard to lift himself up to even take another breath. He was mocked. He was spit upon. He was jeered. He was probably called every insult in the world. He was humiliated. What I'm trying to say is any difficulty that you perceive comes from serving Christ was what he suffered. It's not at all what we suffer because the truth is none of us in America have truly suffered. We may have been called out. We may have been criticized, but we've never suffered for Jesus. There's going to come a time where we will. And that's going to separate the men from the boys. Are we going to stand strong for what we believe in? It was Jesus who carried our sin. It was Jesus who carried our shame. He carried our scorn. He carried our doubts. He carried our anger. He carried our frustrations. He carried our fears. He carried our sicknesses and our diseases. All of it he carried on that cross. He took our place. He paid the price for our sin. That's something you and I could never do for ourselves. And because of that, we can live knowing that we have salvation and that our final destination when our time on this earth is done will be in the presence of God. And any ridicule until then that we receive in this world of people who are blinded to the truth is minuscule compared to the things that Christ endured. So let's please put it into perspective this morning. Jesus did all of this for you because he loves you and he wants to have a relationship with you to offer you victory over sin, over Satan, over death, and over the grave. It's a gift that we must treasure and we must never forget the price that Jesus paid in order to offer it to us. The price was his life, but he didn't stay dead. He resurrected three days later with resurrection power and that same resurrection power now indwells those of us who receive Jesus. It is a gift from God. It is freely given. Something that you cannot earn, 
by being a good human being. It's something you cannot earn by doing good deeds of service for others. It's not something you can earn by giving money to your church or any other worthwhile cause. Don't get me wrong. Those are all byproducts of a person who lives for the Lord. When the love of God gets in your life, you naturally do those three things because that's one of the ways that you bless God by your presence here on this earth. Serving the Lord makes you want to be a good human being. Serving the Lord makes you want to do good works. Serving the Lord makes you want to give freely of your resources so that God's kingdom can be promoted and moved further in this world. But they are not what saves you. They are not requirements to receive salvation. The Bible says simply, in order to receive salvation, you must believe and you must confess. You must believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and He is the only way to God the Father. It is only through a relationship with Him that you can be in a right relationship with God the Father. And so He came, and He died, and He shed His blood, and His blood, blood is what atones for your and my sin. And all we simply need to do is pray a prayer saying, Jesus, I believe in you, and I ask for your blood to atone, to cover, to forgive my sin. It is the cleansing agent. That's what wipes our sin away. That's what brings us into a relationship with Christ Jesus. And that's what gives us the assurance of eternity in God's presence. I want to clear up a misconception this morning in our prayer time. I'm going to pray. We're not going to have an altar call today. I'm just going to close in a prayer. And when I pray, I don't want you to listen to my words. I want you to pray yourself. And if you are here today or you are watching online and you are not currently in a relationship with Jesus Christ, then pray a simple prayer like I've described there this morning. Ask him to be the Lord of your life. And we as a church would love to come alongside of you and to, to uh, disciple you in your Christian walk. We have discipleship classes on Sunday morning starting next week. They will be before the 10 o'clock service. We want to help you to understand what it means to be a Christian, what it means to live a life as a Christ follower, what it means to, to study the scriptures and to find truth in the scriptures that help you to live a God-honoring life. We want to be a part of that. We don't want you to just get saved and then leave here. We want you to be a part of our family, and we want to see you grow in your faith. But for those of us who are already in Christ Jesus, if you have an inkling that it is something that you have done that has offered you salvation in Christ Jesus, you've got to get rid of that thinking. Christ alone, it's nothing you've done. It's nothing you've earned. It's nothing you even deserve. It is a free gift from God. If you ever find yourself in your mind wandering, thinking that, that in order for you to be right in God's eyes, you've got to do good deeds, you're missing the whole concept of salvation. It's free. As I said, when you serve the Lord, all those other things follow. But keep that in mind as we pray this morning. Will you bow your heads with me, please? Precious Lord, we thank you for your word. You really, truly offer us everything that we need in order to understand you, to understand your ways and how to live a life that, that honors the sacrifice that Jesus made for us on our behalf. I pray, Lord, if anyone's in this building or watching online who does not know you, they would pray a simple prayer of belief and confession, believing Jesus, you are the Son of God, 
confessing their sin to you. It would allow you to become Lord of their life and they would allow us as a church family to come alongside of them and help to disciple them. I thank you for those who are praying that prayer right now, Lord. I ask you to strengthen them through your spirit and help us to reach out to them and be meaningful in their life as friends, as guidance, as, as discipleship and everything that we can offer them. Pray that you help us to fulfill the things that you've asked us to do on their behalf. And God, for those who already know you, sometimes that, that works thing comes up in us. It wells up in us and, and we think it's all about doing. It's all about the good things that we do when it's not that at all. It's about the blood of Jesus. Father, let us never get confused by that. Christ alone and what he accomplished on the cross is what offers us our salvation. Let us remember that. Let us embrace it. Let us, to, let us always speak forth that truth and not some kind of a misunderstanding. So God, we give our lives to you. Even those of us who've served you for years, Father, we say to you once again, God, I am yours. Use me. Allow me to be an effective witness in this community, in my family, in my church. Father, I give my life to you. We want you to be number one above all other things. We want you to be the main thing. So Lord, allow us to cast aside all the entanglements and the other things that prevent us from giving ourselves fully to you. And I pray today, Lord, as we go our separate ways, that your Holy Spirit would guide and direct our paths, the places we go, the things that we do, the conversations that we have. Lord, let those conversations build people up and not tear them down. Father, let us be bright lights in this dark world. Pray that your love and your spirit that indwells us would come through so loud and clear that those who we come into contact with would, would see the love of God shining through us and that that would open up doors for them to ask us what it is that's different about us. And then we know when those moments happen, God, as you've shown us in the scriptures, you will always give us the words to say. Even when we feel like we're not prepared, you will give us the right thing to say. So use us, Father, this week. I pray that between now and the time we come together again next week, you will give all of us an opportunity to share your goodness. And at a minimum, that you give us an opportunity to invite someone to come through these doors with us so that they might hear the message of the cross. And Father, until we meet together next week, I pray that you'll keep us safe. Keep us safe from sickness and disease. Keep us safe from any accidents that might befall us until we can gather together again, unified as one body, and worship you in spirit and truth. And we ask these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here today.